Good evening. Very, very exciting to be back in the study of the book of Revelation. So take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to the second chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Follow along as I read from verse 12 through verse 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. In his sermon called Knowledge of God's Will and Its Fruit, Martin Luther said this, The world at the present time is sagaciously discussing how to quell the controversy and strife over doctrine and faith, and how to effect a compromise between the church and the papacy. Let the learned, the wise, it is said, bishops, emperor and princes arbitrate. Each side can easily yield something, and it is better to concede some things which can be construed according to individual interpretation, than that so much persecution, bloodshed, war, and terrible endless dissension and destruction be permitted. But here, Luther said, is a lack of understanding For understanding proves by the word that such patchwork is not according to God's will, but that doctrine, faith, and worship must be preserved pure and unadulterated. There must be no mingling with human nonsense, human opinions, or wisdom. The scriptures give us this rule. We must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29, ending Luther's quote. In 2 Corinthians 6, rather, verses 14 to 17, the Apostle Paul said essentially the same thing, but with more polarizing clarity when he said this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
Or what harmony has Christ with Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? It's interesting that Luther, of course, was was really building on a concept that had come all the way from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 22.10. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Same idea that Paul sort of gives us the essence of in 2 Corinthians 6. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Why? Different natures, different strides of each animal, different instincts. Each animal has a different response to human taskmasters. Each animal has a different response to what they're being harnessed to accomplish. And so metaphorically, it refers to yoking two people, two moral entities together in the same enterprise about which neither can have any harmony or fellowship. In that sense, then, it is exactly as Luther complained and spoke of as unwise and dangerous. It is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, when you cannot be unequally yoked in a spiritual enterprise with the mixing of truth and error. The subtle mingling of a little error with the truth in in the study of church history and false doctrine, we've often called it syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is the mingling of truth and error, and it is one of Satan's most well-worn tools of his evil trade. He infiltrates churches. He comes in under the guise of tolerance and cooperation. That is his consistent tactic. As one author in an article said, Satan does not want to fight the church as much as join it, end quote. This kind of compromise is exactly what Jesus addresses when he sends his messenger to the church at Pergamum. The church at Pergamum, we've called it the people in Pergamum mingling truth with error. Mingling truth with error. This is exceedingly dangerous I thought about this as I was studying the church at Pergamum and looking at today's contemporary scene and why it is we, we find ourselves where, where we are as an evangelical movement. Some have said evangelicalism is dead. I suppose what they mean by that is not that people don't use the title. They do. Or that people don't associate with one another and call themselves evangelicals. They do. I've even said evangelical from this pulpit many times to refer to those of us who name the name of Christ and have a biblical gospel. But it's also true that when we say evangelicalism is dead, it's because for decades now, we have seen the push to cooperate with the culture to um, make us palatable to the culture, to, to dress up the storefront of our church life and make it acceptable and attractive to the culture. For there were ideologies that said, this is how the gospel influence will continue. If the culture doesn't like the gospel, then what you have to do is saddle up next to the culture, 
Find out what the culture says will reach them. And then change whatever is necessary to change. And it was always maintained that we would hold on to the gospel. Oh, we were always assured of that. No, listen, we're not interested in compromise. We just don't like all of the suffering and the conflict and the agony that goes on so much. This is the tactic of Satan. He sends the church into uh, seasons where believer and believer are against one another, or church and church are against one another, it seems. Or one person is contending for the truth and the other says they're contending for the truth and there's conflict. The more we battle for the truth, the more we get the weak stomach for it. This is Satan's tactic. We don't like to suffer. On the heels of every major cultural and national season of suffering, there's been massive paradigm shifts in the way that culture thinks and lives. We don't like suffering. We go to war, we can't stand it. We, we stomach it for about the first year because we're going to war, revenge. We're going to take, take back what was stolen from us. We're going to avenge the losses. After about 12 months, we can't stomach the lists of casualties. And then the suffering, and then the training of more, and sending of more. We just cannot handle it. This is a political nightmare for presidencies. Why? Because human beings are vulnerable. We don't like conflict. We would rather run from those things. And even people who spoil for a fight, who seem to enjoy conflict, we put them over there in the corner. We say, you stay over there. We don't, we don't really like you too much. We'll call you out to fight a battle in the trench, but we don't want you starting the party and being the head of the party. We'd rather be peacemakers. We'd rather soft pedal things. We'd rather not contend earnestly, as Jude says, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we must admit that the more we have a culture that declines and pushes against the doctrine of the church, the more we must be very careful about contending for the faith. No one, no one would suggest that we personally need to be offensive or belligerent. But we're called to contend for the faith because of this problem that Satan tends to use against us. The tendency to want to tolerate subtle errors simply because we like a measure of relief from conflict. Satan loves it so. And he's hoping that we will mix the truth that we believe with some error because if he can get us to do that long enough in the name of cooperation and tolerance he will have us by the throat he will have us by the throat and decades of the pragmatic movement have left us really with ropes around our neck nooses around our neck proverbially we as an evangelical movement if it is alive at all is limping along in its contending for the truth. And that's why so often when a phone call comes to my office during the week, hey, can you find me a church in such and such place? I will search high and low and cannot find a church that hasn't gone the way of all flesh. At least not easily. How can this be? Because we don't like conflict and because we get pushed back on and because we get called narrow and because when you contend for the truth, you get called uh, someone who doesn't like people and you get uh, labeled with the term unloving. And 
that wears us down. And it was no different when churches were born, good churches, solid churches with God's people in there, intending to do the right thing, wanting to contend for the truth, and even at times contending for it to the point of being commended by the Lord. And yet, like Pergamum, there's a mix, a mingling, a tolerance. That's what we find here in this church. And Jesus has to deal with it because it leads to the most devastating kinds of sin. It leads to the gutting of ministry. It leads to the things that you see them chided for here. It leads to a subtle, complete abandonment of the gospel and an excusing of sin and a relabeling of sin in the church. How is it that Corinth could come to the place where Paul had to say, you have incest happening and you're doing nothing about it? How is it Paul could get to the place where he says to Corinth, you have people taking brothers and sisters into the secular law courts and suing them to take from them and letting unbelievers decide the case. How can this be? How can this be that Corinth had descended into such pettiness that some were saying, well, I am of this clique, and I am of this clique, and we don't associate with your clique, and our clique's better than your clique, and our leader is a better guru than your clique's leader. And Paul says, are we not acting like mere men, fleshly? Because there's jealousy and strife. How did this happen? It happened because of the tendency to syncretism. The tendency to mingle truth with error. It's a difficult battle. Pergamum was not impervious. Notice verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Let me just say a couple things about this place. And we don't have time because our time is limited tonight. But this city has ancient roots, but its most notable history is traced to the establishment of the kingdom of Pergamum around 300 BC. And by the time you get uh, 150 years or 180 years later down the road, 133 BC, the entire kingdom came under Roman rule and Pergamum became, at that time, the capital city. And in becoming a capital city, it was literally a center for idolatry. The ancient city of Pergamum, temples were everywhere on the upper hills within the city. They built temples to all the Greek gods. Zeus, the temple to Zeus was there. The most notable temple was to Asclepios, which was the, the god of healing, associated most notably with snakes or serpents. But in Pergamum, the most prominent problem came when false worship in that city was about men. In other words, they began to worship the Roman emperors. They worshiped the Roman emperor. The Lord hates idolatry, but the worst kind of idolatry. I mean, you can make up gods and worship them. That is condemned in Scripture but when mankind worships mankind, when mankind rises to the prominence of imperial leadership and then sets themselves up as God, this is 
the worst kind of idolatry and God hates it. Let me illustrate that. Look back for a moment to Genesis chapter 11 and you will see what God thinks when man wants to make a name for himself. This is a kind of idolatry that God hates with a special hatred. Genesis chapter 11, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Monocultural. The entire globe, one culture, one language. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So in other words, the leadership of the culture, the central uh, direction and government of the monoculture over the globe, there was a settling in the land of Shinar. And they said to one another, this is the, this is the cultural mandate coming from the leaders of the culture, the most powerful, prominent imperial leaders of the culture. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city. There's the emphatic language. Let us build it for ourselves and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And here it is. Let us make for ourselves a name. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. He's not saying let us not spread over the whole earth. He's saying lest we be less powerful than we believe we have a right to be and the prowess to be. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us become renowned. This is the worship of man's prowess. This is the worship of man's name. This is the worship of the creature at the highest form of idolatry. And you know what happened, verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now you say, well, didn't the Lord see it from heaven? Yes, but the graphic language of Genesis is here to indicate that God on his throne had to come down to see men. I love that. So they're not as high as they think they are. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. He's not saying he, that he can be ruled. He's saying their idolatry will spread to such a degree. I mean, this is the grace of Almighty God. He should have said right there, and because they want to make a name for themselves, torch them. But notice, come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. What must have that been like? I've been in foreign cultures and it is frightening when no one around you speaks your language and you're trying to decipher and you, you don't know whether that guy is selling you cotton candy or is about to rob you and there are 10 people behind you listening to him. You just don't know. And then somebody speaks English. Oh, come here. You don't care if it's a homeless person. Come here, let's have coffee. Let's make friends. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Why? They were making a name for themselves. They wanted renown. God hates it when mankind's idolatry reaches the level where he is going to extol and honor the renown of men. 
It is no, no secret then why universities fall under the judgment of God and are filled with unbelief and folly and false teaching. Why? Because men worship their intellect and God judges them for it. It's no wonder that we got confused when the pop psychology movement came on the scene because God allowed us to go down that road as a judgment to us. Why? Because we were mingling ideologies from men, so-called experts, we were mingling it with the sufficiency of Scripture. And so where are we now? Decades later, we can't, we can't work our way out of an emotional basket. God judges that kind of thing. He hates it when mankind worships his intellect. He hates it when the medical community looks at the human body and worships the creature rather than the creator, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. He hates that. He hates when the, the astronomer looks at the stars and doesn't conclude that there's a God with invisible power and strength greater than his and to whom he is held accountable so God judges him and leaves him in his blindness. This is what you have here in Pergamum. They began to worship the emperor, the Roman emperor. And so, what do you have here in the imagery when the message is sent to the church? Say this, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. What is, who, who is that? Notice back in chapter 1, verse 16, the Lord in the midst of his church his churches, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What is that? This is the authority of Christ to judge. You remember when we saw that? This is the authority of Christ to speak a word, and judgment falls. You see the same thing in chapter 2, verse 16, when he tells them to repent. And I will, if you do not repent, make war against them with the sword of my mouth. It's the authority of Christ to judge. It's his word of judgment. You will see it again in the study of chapter 19, verse 15. From the Lord's mouth, when the armies of the earth gather against him, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. The nations who have their rulers, the nations who have their prowess, the nations whose leaders gather together in rooms and talk about how great they are and how they're going to snuff out other nations. You see that today. They get in their big council chambers across the ocean and we get in our big council chamber and these men, they, they believe that they are greater than anyone else on the earth and they boast of the great things they're going to do. God hates that. And so he will strike down the nations with the sharp sword from his mouth and he will rule them, chapter 19 verse 15 says, with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So it is a just word. It is a word of justice and judgment that comes from the Lord's mouth and that's why he's identified that way here. He's going to deal with idolatry and he does so because he is just. It is right to, to declare it. And with a word, they'll be stopped. In fact, in chapter 19, verse 21, it says that the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. One word, all the enemies of Christ completely wiped out. Judgment. 
So the first thing we see here is the Lord's power to punish, and it's in his very title. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write this, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, the one who has the right to punish, the power to punish with a word. And we go from the Lord's power to punish, just in his title, to the church's strength to be commended. This church had a strength. Verse 13. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell. This harkens back to the Lord's intimate knowledge of his church. I know. The Lord knows. I know where you dwell. He knows down to the very city. He knows the very location and the surrounding environment within which the saints of Pergamum do their ministry. The Lord knows. You know, when it says, I know where you dwell, and and dwell is the word for, I know where you've settled as a ministry. I know the place, I know the city. It makes me think about Grace Emanuel. The Lord knows Grace Emanuel. He knows the culture around us intimately. And he knows exactly how Satan is trying to undermine our gospel labors. He also knows our responses to it. He knows how much protection we need to accomplish what he desires, just like he knew what the church at Pergamum needed in this letter. He knows how much vulnerability we have, and he knows how much vulnerability to allow in order to stretch our faith that we might grow for the task that's ahead of us. He knows who to bring into our midst and who to keep away from us. He knows how long he'll wait before He exposes a false influence within our ranks and he knows when to clean house completely. He knows what's ahead. He knows what's ahead for us as we worship in the open right out here on Indian Town Road. He knows what's ahead for us in this city. He knows when persecution will intensify and when he will allow a season of spreading his word unhindered. He knows. He knows where we dwell. But not only did this church exist in Pergamum and the Lord knew they had settled there, but it was also a place where evil dwelt at a uniquely entrenched level. Look at the terminology used here. I know where you've settled, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, same language, where Satan has settled, you have settled. I've put a ministry right in the center of this place, which is spoken of here as uniquely entrenched in a level of evil. We'll call it evil central. Now, admittedly, When you read the text, it's hard to determine the precise sense of this identifying feature. And I spent a lot of time reading view after view after view of just what this might signify. Some said it's it's unique idolatry, that, that the idolatry here was unique in the sense that it had many false gods. Well, there were other churches that had many false gods, and Ephesus was no different. Ephesus had the temple of Diana and the fertility gods and, and the cultists that involved immorality there as well. So I'm not sure that merely the unique number of gods or the fact that it was overrun by, by idolatry and temples uh, would make, make it the place where Satan's throne is. Could be. Some have said, well, the God of healing, I mean, 
they, they, they worshipped the God of healing, so they were really worshipping the mystical sense in which the human body works on its own or mankind's ability to, to somehow be supernatural and heal other people. They worshipped gods of healing even though it is only God who heals. Maybe that's why this is called the place where Satan has set up shop specifically. Some commentaries uh, tried to say that, well, the persecution was unique. Well, I don't know about that. There's persecution in Nero's reign uh, that was so massive it was notably mentioned by the New Testament writers. I'm not sure more intense persecution is the reason that it says here Satan's throne is here. It is a, what we call in, in grammar a subjective genitive. In other words, this is the throne that Satan himself sends forth with its authority. This is the throne of Satan's authority set up in Pergamum. Unique terminology. Perhaps the best explanation may be that Pergamum was the center for the worship of man's power and greatness. Maybe the worship of the emperor it seems to be, in some commentaries, one of the best explanations. That because, like Babel, they had begun to try to make a name for mankind and set up Roman emperors as the gods, the deities of human culture... Pergamum was the first place that a temple to a Roman emperor was erected. It may very well be that Satan did his finest work right there. His most entrenched and holding people in bondage kind of work right there. We just don't know, but that seems to be as good an explanation as any. When God sees a city that is so bent against God that Man deifies himself, sets himself up for other human beings to worship. It seems that that is Satan's greatest work. And the reason is because the God now is, the, the demigod now is tangible. Look, you can make up gods in the Greek cultures and in the Roman cultures, but you can't see them. So eventually, some people are brought out of idolatry because sooner or later, even the rock or the tree that they worship in the name of some foreign god that is made up, they never really see that god. They never really touch that god. They never really see anything tangible expressed from that god. But when mankind sets himself up on his own throne and asks other men to worship him, now we are looking right into the face of our own humankind and we're calling it deity. It's tangible. It's in front of you. And now it's self-perpetuating because the more I see that that man became a god whom I worship, the more I want to be like that man. And so there you have basically the roots of what we see today in Mormonism, where man makes himself into a god, rises to the level of a god, and God hates that level of idolatry. It may be in that sense that Satan has done his finest work in Pergamum, being the first place that set up a temple to the worship of the emperor. And here you have the description. It is where Satan's throne is. This is not to suggest that, that somehow Satan is bound to Pergamum. It's just to suggest that Satan does his greatest deceptive work and from this throne sends forth, forth his authority to hold other people in the same bondage. So it is evil central. But it is also testimony central, as Jesus commends the church here. You, he says, hold fast my name and did not deny my faith 
even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This church was holding fast the name of Christ, particularly in the sense of martyrdom. That's the terminology here, the testimony, the witness. And he says there is a faithful witness, even one by name, Antipas, who was killed among you. It seems to suggest that at some point the emperor worship was demanded of the people and before an edict went out that you could actually persecute unto death those that denied this, there was an initial resistance to it on the part of the church. A person named Antipas was at the front of that resistance and his life was taken, maybe in some sort of mob violence. But even in that, wherever he was dragged, however he was persecuted, before before his life was snuffed out, he did not deny. He would not deny. This is commendable. The church of Pergamum may have been evil central in terms of the context because it was where Satan was doing his greatest idolatrous work, but it was also a place where believers, faithful believers, under the threat of losing their life, were being told, deny the name of Christ, and they were not. They were not denying Christ, faith in Christ. That's why it's personalized here. They hold fast my name, did not deny my faith. The the faith that is dispensed to God's people, the faith that represents Christ and who he is with respect to our salvation, and faith that is subjective. In other words, our trusting of Christ. They didn't deny any of it. Any of it even in the days of Antipas, must have been a notable time recognized by those who knew this church. There was a resistance and Antipas was killed. One commentator said that the tradition suggested that Antipas, we don't know anything about him, but tradition said that he was was burned to death in a bronze bowl during the reign of Domitian. We don't know. But the Lord commends this church for standing strong and faithful when faced with denying him before men. There was in this church a faithful group that represented the church at Pergamum. And they were obedient to what Jesus warned in Luke 9.26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. They were commendable because they stood. It was a tough group. It was a tough group when it came time to resist the culture's threat that they deny Christ. They didn't want to deny Christ. They wanted to profess Christ. And there was a faithful group in there that even under the threat of death or in the wake of Antipas' death, they stayed faithful. That's commendable. That was a strength. And the Lord says it and gives all of it, gives the news of it to all of us. But then, unfortunately, sadly, verse 14 indicates that the church was compromising and for that they were to be condemned. So the church's strength was to be commended, the church's compromise is to be condemned. Notice Jesus says, but I have 
a few things against you. The word literally means some, some sins against you or some complaints against you. This isn't just one complaint, although people have tried to lump it into one. It's essentially a term that, that simply means, though you have this to commend you, I have some things you need to deal with. And you need to deal with them now. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. What do we notice, first of all? There are syncretists in the camp. Syncretists. There are people in the church who, while they are wonderfully enjoying and basking in the commendation of having stood firm in a time of persecution, it is also true that they were weakening under the cultural pressure. They wanted superficial peace. They were like the pragmatists of our day. They didn't want to argue and contend for the faith to the point where it might threaten their life. In fact, when Antipas was killed, no doubt they went home, had discussions around the dinner table, and began to close down the shades and turn off the lights and not want to be discovered. This is always how Satan works. Kill a Christian and watch what happens to the rest of them. Threaten their lives and they will run. I mean, after all, didn't the Lord say that if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will, what? Scatter. It is typical of us. All the way up to the apostles who lived with him three years. They struck the shepherd. What happened? They're gone. What was Satan's main complaint against Job? Hey, the only reason he is faithful to you is because you protect him from suffering and affliction. If you allow suffering and affliction, he will curse you to your face. How did Satan bring such an accusation? Because quite often, faithful people have become syncretists and compromisers because they they got worn out, worn down, weakened. And in Pergamum, you had... Some tough believers who were leading the way in the, in the wake of the persecution that led to Antipas' death. And even though they held fast the name and they stood strong in faith, even though they were commended for that because it was still an ongoing strength, there was leaking in the back door some tolerance and some compromise of things that, that should have been dealt with because they were massive idolatries that destroyed churches. Jesus wanted them dealt with, but there were syncretists in the camp. Maybe not people that blatantly endorsed the worship of false gods or blatantly endorsed immorality, but certainly they tolerated it. Certainly they didn't do anything about it. If they saw it going on, they said nothing. Kind of like Corinth, not saying anything about the immoral man or removing him from the flock. They weren't doing church discipline. So there were syncretists in the camp. Notice verse 14, you have there some. (laughs) What is that language sort of addressing? Well, you dwell here where Satan's throne is. You've been faithful in the midst of that place where Satan is dwelling. But you also have there in the church where you are, where you've settled, you have right in your midst 
dwelling also with you. Tolerators. Compromisers. While you're locking the door over here against error, they're opening the door over here to another error. Why? Because they want to be friends with the culture. They, they want to be palatable. They get tired of the struggle. He mentions here what had happened. There are those who hold the teaching of Balaam. This is a shock. In Numbers 24, you remember that Balak, coming against Israel, kept saying to Balaam, the prophet of God, listen, you need to, you need to curse them. Bring down the curses of God. And Balaam wouldn't do it, and he wouldn't do it. By the time you get to Numbers 25, Israel has already been in a wholesale compromise with the pagans, and they are in idolatry and immorality, and it doesn't really matter which one comes first. Both lead to the other. An immoral life with pagans will lead to adopting their false gods. This was Solomon's problem. He loved foreign women and he brought false gods into Israel through his love of immorality. Or it's the other way around like Romans 1. You start to believe and worship the creature rather than the creator and it leads to a spiraling into immorality. Either way, those sins are twins. They go together. And what happened by the time Israel had had uh, been in the surrounding nations, they began to intermarry, and it led to immorality, and it led to idolatry. So what did Balaam have to do with that? Well, by the time you get to the record of it in Deuteronomy 31, it says there that he's the one that led them into that. You say, how did he lead them into that? He's the one who, behind the door, had opened the door to error by telling Balak, look, if you could seduce Israel into idolatry, then God's protection will be taken off of them and you'll rout them. That's basically what happened. So over here, he's saying, I will not pronounce a formal curse on Israel because then I would be violating my job as a prophet. So over here, he's standing for truth, closing the door hard, and over here, he's saying, by the way, Balak, if they got seduced into idolatry, God would take his protective shield off of them and you can rout them. And that is precisely what happened. And that's why Balaam was chided for it and rebuked for it and condemned for it. And it becomes this massive error that has namesakes. People in other cultures down the road are, are called those who fall into the same sin. You see it named in 2 Peter 2.15 when it says that the false teachers that Peter refers to have fallen into the sin of Balaam. And it says of Balaam, he loved the wages of unrighteousness. What was Balaam trying to do when he opened the back door on error? He was being a syncretist, a compromiser. He over here was showing his formal colors and over here he was opening the door to error. Why? Because he wanted some sort of alliance. He did not want to stand strong. He got tired of the argument taking a stand and he began to open the gate to error and when it came in, it came in like a flood and Israel became idolatrous and it led to gross immorality in the name of worship. What an error. And he became an accomplice to Israel's compromise. Same thing you see in Jude 11. It is mentioned again. He betrayed his God by becoming a syncretist. 
You know what it led to? Notice here in Pergamum, you have some who hold to that same teaching, the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. He's not suggesting some particular teaching of Balaam that, that is noticeable or found somewhere in the Old Testament. He's just talking about the compromise that led to it. Hey, get along. Hey, don't, don't go there. Hey, don't take a stand like that or you're not going to be able to make friends. Hey, you need, to, you need to make sure that you're not accused of being unloving. You need to bring a palatable message of God to people. That kind of teaching. We see it all the time in contemporary evangelicalism. We're pushed all the time to do it. Oh, did you read this good book? Oh, it's a great book. Well, when you read it, you see the trouble. But everybody's bought it. Now what do you say? You're going to be the only one standing there saying, yeah, it's not really a good book. Well, I benefited from it. And instead of saying, how did you benefit from that when it goes against scripture? You get in your little study and everybody there is loving the book and you just go mute. Uh, okay. Or you, you try to help someone who moves to another place and they, they say, well, I found a church. And, you know, the teaching is, you know, they, they love Joel Osteen and. And he's pretty good, isn't he? I mean, no. He's a false teacher. Really? I mean, I know lots of people at Grace Emanuel who listen to him. How can he be a false teacher when so many good people like him? And so what do you do? Uh, okay, I won't say anything. You know what you've just done? You've opened the door. You have a subtle form of syncretism. Because you would never allow that to your children who came home with some false doctrine. Oh, no. But over here, you just kind of open the door. Well, I don't want to lose my friends at the Bible study. This isn't about personal belligerence. It's about coming alongside in love and saying we can't be syncretists or it will lead to idolatry and immorality. There will come a day, Paul says, when the church, when they will no longer tolerate sound doctrine. He's not talking about pagans. He's talking about the church. When the church will no longer tolerate sound doctrine. That's interesting. You know what frightens me about that? When I'm off the scene and have passed the baton, what am I going to find if somehow I'm wheeled back in here in my 90s? Look at you laughing. <laughs> What's going to happen if I'm wheeled back in here and from this pulpit comes some gibberish? That would, be, that would be terrible, grieving. But if you trace the pathology, it's the same. Someone somewhere rose to the position of leadership and became at heart a syncretist. Notice also verse 15, thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's interesting. Thus you also have some. It's, it's almost as though some would suggest this is really the same group of people, but it's not. They're named for their particular sin. And we don't really understand the full depth of this, but essentially it has to have led to the same thing because that's, what he, that's why he says thus also. 
You know, you have some who have held to the teaching of Balak and they don't mind putting a stumbling block through syncretist compromise in front of other people who end up idolatrous and committing immorality. And thus you also in the church have a group of people who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which leads to the same sin. So we don't really know what the Nicolaitan sin was, but it, it was likely some sort of similar parallel to a hyper-grace view saying nothing about immorality, excusing idolatry. That's largely, no doubt, what it was. In that culture in Pergamum, they would have, in their pagan worship, they would have feasts, and in those feasts, they would eat uh, the meal, and they would get involved in the celebration and the rituals with which they then would, in their minds, rise to some level of spirituality, and it involved immorality. So there they were, There they were, some in Pergamum, in the church, professing Christ, but then attending the feasts, and the church wasn't disciplining them or saying anything about it. And the Lord hates that. And you had a second group called the Nicolaitans, and they were emboldened by those who held to the teaching of Balaam. And so those who came along with probably what amounts to uh, a very libertine view Sure, go ahead, get involved in the feast. Sure, go ahead. The immorality that's involved in the feast, that's, that's religious immorality. I mean, you, you commune with the deities. You, that, that's encouraging your spiritual life. We see that today in the church. Oh, you're over there hanging out with that worldly group of people doing those worldly things. It's giving you freedom. You're liberated. Peter warns, don't you dare use your liberty as a covering for sin. Don't do that. It's a form of syncretism if you come here and profess Christ and then go do that. Licentious conduct was all over idol worship in Pergamum. And Christians, because of the cultural pressure, were coming under it. And the church had not pronounced anything against them. And it was leading people into idolatry and immorality. The church said nothing. I've seen that today. I often am talking with churches and I'll ask them, so what is your process of calling people to repentance and anyone who is committing a sin in unrepentant uh, threat to the purity of the church or to the unity of the church, how how do you deal with them? And often I I will hear crickets. Nothing. Well, you know, we we can't get in people's lives like that. Listen, if you don't practice church discipline, you're not really a faithful New Testament church. So says Jesus, the Lord of his church. This church wasn't doing church discipline and the Lord hated it. And so verse 16, he says, repent, therefore, turn from it. Confess it, repent, therefore. I want you to repent of it, turn from it, not just change your mind, but change your convictions so that your actions now bear fruit. Or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Yikes, the Lord himself. He's going to make war with the idolaters and the the immoral people. He is going to make war with them and what is going to happen to the church at Pergamum? It will be either purified or snuffed out as to its influence. So, he says, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is to say, if you are listening to this letter and you are inclined by the humility that comes from the Holy Spirit, if you are looking at the situation with a renewed mind, if you are gripped by conviction because maybe you were the one that opened the door to compromise, if you are feeling any tinge in your conscience, any pang of guilt at all, I want you to exercise faith. He who has ears to hear, he who hears with ears of faith, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You better pay attention. Syncretism will destroy ministry. Syncretism will destroy people's lives. It will start producing and spawning immorality and idolatry in the church to the point where we won't even be a recognizable gospel ministry. Whatever may come out of our mouth in affirmation of such things. And look at the great promise. To him who overcomes, overcomes what? Repents and overcomes the, the onslaught in the church of idolatry and immorality to compromise with the culture. To him who goes past that. To him who says something against it. To him who sticks with church discipline. To him who wants the purity of the church. To him who takes a stand even if he's the only one. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Hidden manna here is likely just a reference to the, the spiritual resources necessary for your fulfillment. In other words, stop compromising with the culture and hearken back to what God has always done with his people. I will supply, worship me. I will be your guide. Follow me. In a place where Satan dwells, where idolatry is massive and persecution could become a massive onslaught, follow me. I'll take care of you. I will give you the manna. I will supply your spiritual food. He's the bread. You eat his bread. You never hunger. This is eschatological. This is a promise that if you overcome, if you stay faithful, if you do not deny, you will have an influence and you will be amply supplied by the Lord. You do not have to resort to, hey, we're going to compromise a little over here. We're going to be palatable with the culture. I mean, beloved, this is so rich, a promise. When we are tempted, as, as right here in our community, there's a growing dislike and disdain and contempt for people who are trying to live a holy life and reach out in love with the gospel. But our message is you need the gospel. And they're saying, no, we do not. We are our own gods, our own captain of our soul. And we're saying, no, that's not what the Bible says. And they're saying, we're going to silence the Bible and we're going to silence you. As we see that coming, if we stand based upon knowing that the supply comes from God, he will fulfill us. The promise is that you will be sustained. If you compromise with the world, you are stepping on your spiritual air hose. You are eating something that has no nutrition. Wait for the sustaining manna of Christ. Hold. And I will give him a white stone what is the white stone? Are you ready for this? I have no idea. <laughs> we don't know what it is. 
I suppose from the context you, you could guess, some, some of the cultural ideas, it may very well be that the judicial element is here. So, so when you were declared uh, either guilty or innocent or a judicial edict was made, it was carved in a stone. And, and some of it went all the way down, history says, to personal stones given to people as a marker of their either their guilt or their innocence. It may very well be that in this context... All the Lord did through the messenger was say, oh, you want a stone that demonstrates where you stand on which side or the other? I'll give you a white stone with my name carved in it or the name, he says, written on it, which no one knows but he who receives it. It'll be a marker of my relationship with you. It will mark you out as mine. You will not be a part of the idolatry and immorality I'm about to judge. That may be it. Another commentary suggested that you, you got white stones, which were little flat stones that you used as entry into events. And maybe there's some sort of sense in which this is your entry stone into eternity. The text doesn't say. But it seems to me that if the judicial judgment of Christ by his very words with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, if you're protected from that because you overcome, you stay away from syncretism and you stay away from compromise and idolatry and immorality, it seems to me that if you receive this future marker because you've overcome, it seems to me that it is what protects you from judgment. You belong to Christ. You want a stone with your name in it and the judicial Sentence that says you are free and clear with the judge who has the sword in his mouth? I'll give you a stone. And between me and you, it'll be my particular gift to you who's overcome. Very personal. Very personal promise for those who overcome. This is the church who mingled truth with error. Beloved, listen, I'm not suggesting that in our contending for the truth, we, we, we know all the truth and we understand all the truth and absolutely we get to point our fingers at people as if we're standing over them. I told my wife this week, we don't take the Bible and, and stand over people through the scriptures, leaving them under its authority. We put the Bible over our heads as well. We're under all of Christ's authority. All of us are under it. But we must contend. For the word of Christ and proclaim his authority over all mankind, regardless of the outcome. Only then can we be protected from immorality and idolatry. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Bow with me. Lord, keep us from this sin. We're syncretists at heart in our flesh. But by your spirit, we are uncompromising. We will take a stand like Antipas. Can't wait to meet him. Who stood in the midst of the place where the worship of mankind was so grotesque. So fueled by Satan's cheap earthly authority. And yet it, it unsettled Christians because we don't like to suffer. Oh God. Keep us from taking a stand on one side while opening the back door on the other. Mingling truth with error. Teach us the subtleties. May we repent of any time we've ever done that in any way that we might be overcomers 
and you might use us in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.